This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're talking about the second Democratic presidential primary debate. What did it all mean? We just saw five hours of Democrats arguing and debating over health care, over immigration. And Joe Biden took a lot of shots. What does that mean? Kamala Harris was on defense for the first time. Could she handle it? We talked about that with Tal Copen, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent. The big man, John Wildermuth, Chronicle political writer, and from the Chronicle's Ivory Tower, deputy opinion editor, Kai Milner. We're all here talking about the second Democratic debate on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome. We are here in San Francisco. It's the night after the second uh, Democratic debate. We have just heard five hours of CNN broadcasted uh, presidential debate. I think uh, actually about three of those hours were actually debating. The rest was were consumed by introductions and uh, you know talking head blather. But we are here to break down what we heard and what it all means. And joining us from Washington, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen. Tal, say hello to everyone. Hello, wonderful people out there. All right. And veteran political journalist, the big man, John Wildermuth. Hi. And joining us from the Chronicle's Ivory Tower, the Chronicle's deputy opinion editor, Kai Milner. Kai, welcome back to It's All Political. Glad to be here. All right. We've heard the five hours. Tal, is there anything that happened over that time that changed the race as we know it today? I don't know if if you're looking for something, you know, earth shattering and scrambling. I don't think so. I think that, you know, every candidate seemed to improve from the first debate. Uh, but the effect of that is that the rankings stayed largely the same because everyone sort of upped their game. You know, the, the biggest difference maker when we're talking about this debate, you know, if the first debate was introductions, this debate was all about making the cutoff for the next debate in September where you have to be polling at 2% uh, in four different polls and have 130,000 donors. There are three to five candidates who were sort of in striking distance of that going into uh, this round of debates. The biggest question is whether they did enough to propel themselves in there. I think we'll probably, if I had to guess, have about 10 candidates still standing in September. 
Yeah, we have seven have made it uh, from the latest I've seen. Right. And, and three, or, three or four, as you say, are on the bubble. Kai, who, what jumped out at you? What, as If you're a voter at home trying to make sense of all this, what, what, what could you take away from this that would help you make a, an informed decision? The thing that jumped out at me is that the front runners are front runners for a reason. Um, Sanders, Warren, Biden, Harris, these people were the ones that everyone was trying to attack on the stage. And for the most part, I would say they didn't succeed. Um, they didn't succeed in knocking these people off of their perches. Um, you saw some of the kind of the one to two percenters, as I call them, uh, try to go for their own personal moments. But there really just weren't any big breakouts the way that I think they were hoping for. Someone who took a lot of shots, big man, was the uh, former vice president, Joe Biden. He took shots on his record on criminal justice, on immigration, on climate change. Will any of these stick or are we going to be hearing these more? What, what hurt Biden? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what hurt him. I mean, everybody, there wasn't much doubt. I mean, if you look at the uh, Real Clear Politics poll average, he's doubling uh, Sanders in second place, about 32 to 16. So the since only only one wins at the end, it's to the uh, it's the advantage of everybody else trying to pull him down. Uh, and when you have a forty year record in politics with heaven knows how many hundreds of votes you've actually taken, you got a lot of stuff that people can uh, can nitpick and take looks at. I think the biggest uh, thing take off for me yesterday is that he won by not losing, by not making a, a big gaffe or not making a really terrible mistake and not really looking as out of touch as he did in the first debate. So I agree with Kai is that nothing's changed. I mean, but it's it, you're going to see the same stuff from now until uh, the end of the primaries. So, some of the chatter I've heard in the, in the few hours since the debate ended was that these attacks on Biden, and this is largely coming from his camp, were attacks on the Obama legacy. I don't know. I mean, I thought one of the m- most effective lines last night was when Booker— said to uh, said to uh, Biden, you know, you, you wrap yourself in the Obama legacy all the time, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, now, you know, on immigration, I was the vice president. I, you know, didn't make the final call. Um, let's talk about the Obama legacy. Can, is, is that accurate? Is this an attack on the Obama legacy? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's nothing sacred about anybody's legacy right. or something like that. And, you know, it doesn't matter how popular a president is, you know, there are many pe- things that he did that not everybody agreed with. Hmm. Uh, I think the— Like immigration, where he did, there were, eight yeah, or, what, 800,000 uh, the deportations. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the Democratic Party has changed a lot since the end of the Obama administration. And, you know, it's true on immigration. There's a big question in my mind about, you know, the the— different voter blocks and how they're going to respond to these attacks. I think there are definitely a an active, loud group of immigration advocates of, you know, sort of younger Democratic voters who really do look critically at some of the things Obama did. And, you know, at the time, perhaps they were groundbreaking, but 
Obamacare has kind of become baked in to Americans' understanding of health care, and they're going to be looking for what the next thing is. So to some voters, in some ways, the Obama legacy can be a liability if you're not saying how you're going to go beyond it. At the same time, I think there are plenty of Democratic voters sitting at home who are saying to themselves, I would be just fine with basically another Obama administration. And so some of these voters are still or some of these candidates are still fighting over which which version of the Democratic Party they think is going to be sort of the winning coalition to get them into the general. You know, the other thing about Biden is is his sort of not the American people's knowledge of him has been sort of baked in the way he was going to lose votes was always either some major mistake, which he hasn't quite made yet. But just over time, appearing like a candidate from a bygone era and the newer candidates kind of getting some credibility, getting some excitement in voters' eyes and just kind of slowly eating away at his voter base. And I don't know that last night he did anything to sort of stem the tide against that kind of continued trend possibly into the future. If you look at the attacks that have been most successful against Biden, Uh, I'm thinking about the first debate when Harris attacked him on busing. And I'm thinking about, you know, the long record he's had with with women's issues and people talking with him about women's issues. And Gillibrand brought this up last night when she talked about this op-ed he wrote in the 80s, basically saying women needed to stay at home. These attacks have had nothing to do with his performance as the vice president, have had nothing to do with Obama's legacy. Um, They have had everything to do with Joe Biden. And he really has yet to answer these things in in a manner that satisfies people and that can put them to rest. So I, I think, you know, it's nice of him to try and dodge and put this on Obama. But I actually think, you know, that's why Booker's attack was so good, because you can't embrace Obama when it looks good for you and not pay attention to what people are actually saying about you as a candidate. One thing, though, is that, uh, as I said, whenever you've spent as long a time in the political eye in, in the legislature as Biden has, there are votes, there are statements, there are things. There, are, It's a target-rich environment. But the problem is, is that you know, if you're talking about cherry picking, that's exactly what some of the opponents are doing. It said, well, you did this, and this shows that you hate women. Well, he can come back and say, well, look at the 900 votes I took pushing for women and everything like that. The key to remember is at the end of the day, no candidate up there is going to be exactly the perfect person agreeing with absolutely everything that you do. And voters recognize that. And at some way, sometime in the future, they're going to have to say, well, this guy is good enough or this person is good enough. Biden's campaign maintains that they have a majority of support from the uh, black community, from black voters. Is there anything that could shake that support? And if so, where would those votes go? Oh, for sure. I'm not sure that that's true at all. I think there's a big generational divide with black voters. Older black voters for Biden. Older black voters are for Biden. Younger black voters are up for grabs. And the thing about younger black voters is if you want to see where the enthusiasm for the Democrats are going, you look and see how many of the younger black voters are actually voting. That will give you that will provide you the key to understanding what turnout is going to be. And turnout is going to be what decides this election, nothing else. So and the younger black voters are up for grabs. They haven't made a decision yet about who they want, but they're pretty sure it's not Biden. 
there are also, uh, you know, other polling indicators that we should be looking at other than simply sort of raw, you know, total numbers. I mean, some polls are doing an interesting thing this year where they're comparing what people say when you give them an open-ended question of who do you support in the Democratic primary versus reading through a list of names. And Biden's Biden's name tends to still be number one with the open-ended question, but by much smaller margins, indicating that some of his support is merely name recognition or who people are sort of settling on when forced to choose from a list. You know, there's also a question of name recognition and overall favorability that shows, again, some of the candidates that have been leading the pack from the beginning, like Biden and Bernie, may be at more of a ceiling in support than a floor, as opposed to some candidates who have a lot of room to grow. So, you know, you can look at where we are in the race today, certainly, but there are also some indications that there's plenty of room for change, even among voters who say they have already picked a candidate, which we all know from the voters we've spoken to over the past few months, most of them sort of pick one, but say there are a few they also like at the same time. Right. And of course, the overarching response from all voters is anyone who can beat Trump is their, is their main criteria for who they're going to vote for. Um, Tal, you wrote uh, in, the, in, the, in the analysis piece that we, we wrote uh, in today's Chronicle um, that Kamala Harris was in a is in an unusual position in in last night's debate, and that was she was playing a little more defense than she's used to. What what was that like, and what was that all about? Yeah, she was you know getting some attacks from the, so the sort of flanks of the stage as much as Biden was in many cases, and you know a lot of it is sort of what we've been expecting to be her biggest liability on the campaign trail, which is a deep dive on her record as a prosecutor. You know, especially as she's sort of positioning herself as an authoritative vo- voice on racial relations or criminal justice reform. You know, when we talk about having a lot of baggage from a long record, I mean she has has a long record of being, you know, part of the prosecution side of the criminal justice system. And so, you know, we saw Biden dip into that a little bit. Uh, He kind of stumbled through it. But then Tulsi Gabbard, who's a congresswoman from Hawaii, you know, who really does sort of appeal in some respects to the sort of Bernie wing of the progressive movement, she really went after Kamala Harris and raised some specific examples from her past in terms of, you know, potentially exculpatory evidence as it relates to death row clients all the way down to the fact that Kamala Harris prosecuted plenty of marijuana offenses when she was in a position to put people in jail and, you know, is now laughing about having used marijuana and and introducing marijuana justice reform legislation. And so that actually, if you look at the Google trends for the night, that moment when Biden and then Gabbard really brought up her prosecutor's record was the highest spike in traffic searches for her name during the whole debate. And I, th- I think it was the number two most tweeted uh, uh, line of the night or, uh, or yeah. phrase of the night, uh, for what that's worth. Um, and a lot of those, uh, we'll be inv- fact-checking some of those claims, but the, at first glance, some of those are very accurate. So it's, it's, as you say, she has a long history there. Yeah, and her response, we should say, her response was basically that she would still 
stand up her record. And certainly there are other things in her prosecutor record where she was sort of leading the pack progressively around the country. I mean, she really did try to work on some, you know, sort of ways to divert people out of the jail system and kind of work on some restorative justice stuff. She, she, you know, pioneered a defense um, or a response to what people were calling the gay panic defense so that you couldn't get out of a crime against an LGBTQ person uh, by claiming that it sort of spurred some sort of panic in you. So, you know, when we talk about cherry picking a record, I think you saw on stage Kamala Harris's frustration that she really feels like she was leaning forward as a prosecutor uh, and, you know, just picking some of the perhaps lower moments kind of obscure the total picture. All right, let's let's talk about uh, we want to cover some stuff that happened in night one uh, where it was very much the battle between the progressives uh, who were being attacked. This is the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. And the and the conversation was largely around health care. The uh, the more moderate people who we don't hear much about, the John Delaney's and John Hickenloopers of the world were saying this is fantasy land We're we're not going to be able to implement this this uh, a single payer government run health care plan, which Sanders and Warren want. Um, and Warren and Sanders had to defend that. Uh, what big man, what do we what do we make of that? Is that is that a conversation that's going to end? Uh, with, did we end it? Or is this something we're going to be we're going we're going to be hearing about through the convention and beyond? We're going to be hearing about this all the way along because there is that split. There's a rift between the, you know, the progressives and in many cases, their supporters, the younger supporters like that, and the more moderates, the more centrist Democrats, who are saying that, you know, those progressives are essentially kicking out anybody on the other side, the the independents or the blue-collar Democrats that they need, that they're going to need to win those Midwest states. And that's why you see people uh, like Klobuchar and everything saying, we can't exactly do this because we need these people that aren't as far to the uh, progressive side as the others. Uh, the other interesting thing is there's a uh, report in uh, for the Kaiser Group today talking about, uh, talking about Medicare for All, and it said they did a survey, and most people don't know what any of this stuff is about, right. and they don't particularly care what any, any of it's about. And as far as the nuances go, there's just – it's uh, pretty much the uh, – the people really into politics that are paying attention to the nuances. And the 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 thing that few candidates mentioned was how this is going to lower costs. How much is it going to cost? The raw dollars <clears throat> and cents of how it's going to uh, hit the consumer. I think Warren was one of the few people who said, you know, uh, 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 rich people and corporations will pay more. The middle class will pay less. Uh, perhaps ultimately, but everyone's taxes will go up to pay for this stuff. The, your overall costs may go down, but it's it's a it's an argument and a, a discussion that's going to take a while. Guys, is, is this a winning one for for the Democrats, or are they going too far out in a limb on this? Well, I think as we saw when the um, Republicans tried to get rid of the ACA, that the American people were very concerned about their health care. They were willing to fight back against it. They're worried about having their health care take away. And definitely with Democratic Party voters, um, that's their number one concern, mm -hmm. reducing the cost of health care. So I, 
And generally speaking, when you look at polls, voters trust Democrats way more on health care than they trust Republicans. So I think that this is a, a really good issue for them. And I think, you know, having a plan that's like, OK, we have the ACA. We're going to go one step further because we didn't go far enough. I think that they can definitely win on that platform if they can explain it well. And I have to say, I was a little concerned that neither Biden nor Harris explained their health care plans well. No, they were explaining it, I think, to analysts more than, than everyday people at home who are looking at this, and they, they don't even know who the hell everybody is, uh, is on stage, let alone the, the nuances of these plans. Um, the other thing that was striking and kind of funny is the, uh, is the use of a new talking point by Democrats is to chill conversation by calling something a Republican talking point. What, what's that about? Is that, that goofy or is that – it just seems kind of silly. Well, it is. What's uh, kind of funny about the whole thing is what they say are Republican talking points in a general election are definitely going to be the things that Republicans are going to be talking about. And it's not going to be anything anything different about that. Uh, to an extent, the uh, most interesting comment was from Buttigieg, Buttigieg uh, when he said, hey, if we uh, go and try and be more conservative, the Republicans are going to call us a bunch of socialists. If we try and be more progressive – the Republicans are going to try and call us a bunch of socialists. So why don't we just do what we think is right and let the chips fall where they may? All right. Let's, I want to wrap up with a couple things. Number one, who is in trouble after this debate? Because if they don't make this September debate, it's going to be very hard to continue to raise money, to continue to have visibility. Who, which candidates are, are really going to be scrambling over the next few weeks to, to get onto that debate stage? You know, we have more than 20 candidates and we think maybe 10 are going to make the next debate stage. I mean, there's a long list of candidates who, you know, probably aren't going to get there. I think, you know, if you want to focus on the ones who maybe should have been in striking distance, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, really sort of not even as close to the bubble as perhaps Amy Klobuchar, uh, you know, a lot of the governors that typically in a normal election year in the past governors would have you know a great claim to running for president i don't off the top of my head i don't think any of the governors right now are really Inslee, in a position Jay to make of washington. the september debate yeah so jay Inslee of, of washington steve bullock of montana uh they might be uh, on the critical list uh gillibrand uh, same uh, Kai, anyone else you think might be? Uh, Klobuchar, I think we've seen the last of her. I think we've seen the last of Bill de Blasio. Um, I think we've seen, uh, well, I don't know. Have, did Beto qualify? Beto has qualified, yes. Um, Beto has already qualified. Klobuchar actually uh, is within striking distance. She's she's in the bubble range along with Booker, Castro, uh, Yang, and Williamson at this point. So that means Delaney's out. That means... Um, who else? Uh, Tim Ryan is out. Right. Well, what you're going to see is that uh, the uh, people, the Congress, uh, members of Congress are going to have to decide, you know, in the pretty near future, whether the game's worth the candle or whether they want to come back and run for reelect. Uh, Delaney is kind of interesting because he can self-finance and has been willing to do that. And actually, I thought he turned out pretty good on uh, on Tuesday. If for no other reason, people might not have liked him, but they might have remembered him which helps on that. Uh, but everybody down on the bottom in the, the 1% and 2% has to seriously l take a look and say, am I going to be president? And is it worth running 
looking for money and scrambling for not having any chance of moving on. And we hope uh, for personal reasons that Gillibrand stays in the race because she's booked to be on It's All Political on August 26th. So hopefully she'll make her decision after that. Um, what what do we want to see over the next month from these candidates? Uh, what, what as voter as as people who are uh, consumers of American democracy, what do we want to hear from them over the next few weeks? Do we want them to spell out their health care plans? What what do we want to what would help if you're trying to decide between these people? What do we want to hear? I don't know that we want to see the Elizabeth Warren thing. I've got a plan for that. I've got a plan for everything. I think what people are looking for now is somebody they can relate to, someone that feels like a president. So we're still in introductory mode. Absolutely. Okay. Take a look at where we are in the cycle, right? We're headed into August. Washington shuts down. The House adjourned for a six-week recess last week. The Senate wrapped up today. They won't be back until September. This is... Iowa State Fair month. This is get out and go to all the community events in the early states. We've got candidates heading to Nevada. I mean, Kamala Harris is even going to Denver right after the debate. So we're not really going to hear a ton from the candidates in terms of these big national moments like the debates again until September. What they're going to be doing is the old school retail politicking, stopping by, you know, barbecues and fish fries and trying to win over voters in person. And, you know, that actually, as as quaint as it seems and as hard as it is to cover from far away, that's the kind of stuff that can win you a primary, which sometimes is far more important than, you know, the months and months and months of polling that led up to that primary. It's that sort of moment of convincing the American people that you're electable. A lot of sort of squishy-minded voters in terms of not having settled on a candidate, they will gravitate to a winner pretty quick. Yes, and that is absolutely the game in Iowa where you, you'll see people in a, in a corner of a grocery store you know, speaking to 12 people. It's very quaint. It's, 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 uh, and, and as Californians, of course, we're very envious of that. Kai, what are you looking for over the next few months, or next few weeks, before our next uh, gathering after a uh, debate? Well, the next few weeks, I, I agree with uh, Tal definitely that you know they're going to be out there doing their uh, glad handling, glad handing, and um, retail politicking. One thing I am hopeful for in the September debates, and I thought um, Andrew Yang actually did the best job of doing this. There weren't very many questions about the economy. Um, I think Trump is actually more vulnerable on this than Democrats realize because a lot of people are not feeling like they got anything out of the economic expansion. Um, And one thing Andrew Yang did really well last night was he turned questions around to what he wanted to talk about, which is the robots and the AI and you're losing your jobs. And people have a lot of insecurity about that. So I, I would love in September for to, to see some of the candidates um, talk about that a bit more. Well, pocketbook issues. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, like, raw dollars, what this means to you. Yes. All right. Thanks, all. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Tall for joining us from Washington, the big man, John Wildermuth and Kai Milner joining us here in San Francisco. And I'd like to thank Libby Coleman, who is, this is her last podcast. She's done such a great job. I'm going to miss her so much. She's going to the farm. She's going to work at a a hard labor farm. No, no, she's going to to the Stanford Business School on the farm. So we thank Libby so much for all her great work. 
And remember, whether you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and know what the flavor is or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.